Before we look into God's Word, a word of appreciation and a request for prayer. Two weeks ago, I did something I rarely do. I actually posted something on social media. I do that maybe about twice a year. It was a prayer request from a dear friend of mine and a friend of this congregation, Edward Awabda. Edward is a pastor and the lead of all of our alliance churches in the nation of Syria. And because of the events unfolding in that nation, Edward sent out an appeal for prayer for God's people and for all of the people in the nation of Syria. Within two days of posting that, you not only responded, but you passed it on to your friends and connections on social media. And the last time I looked, within about two days' time, over 3,000 people had viewed that prayer request and indicated they were praying. So thank you for responding to that impromptu prayer request for our brothers and sisters in that nation. Now the request for prayer. A few weeks ago in our annual meeting, we reviewed once again the whole behind-the-scenes succession planning that has been taking place and that you have been covering in wonderful, wonderful prayer. Yesterday, the folks from our congregation, about 60 in number, who will be making the final decision as to discerning God's appointed person, met to consider a person that the succession committee was suggesting for approval. After several hours of discussion and reviewing all of the interviews and time spent with that candidate and so on, the goal was to put forward a vote as to whether or not that candidate would go to the next final stage of the process. And we set the benchmark for an approval vote at 80%, because anything less than that we felt, then we need to go back to praying and asking, what, what is God's leading? I left the meeting before the vote was taken, probably a good thing, I don't know, but uh, I had to speak at another conference. But while I was at that conference, I got a text from Pastor Blaine. The vote to put that person through to the final stage was unanimous. Amen. Now, that's a good thing when God's people are seeking to discern His leading. So in two weeks, Saturday, two weeks from yesterday, there will be a meeting with the candidate, his wife. They will conduct a brief worship experience for the 60 decision makers, and then they will field questions. And following that, those making decisions will go to prayer. And then following prayer, they will vote by ballot. We're not going to have strong voices influencing a decision. They will vote by ballot, and either we will have found Joshua, or we will say, this is not Joshua, and we'll go back to square one of the process. But all of that's in the Lord's hands, and you have been praying. But that meeting in two weeks is obviously a very critical meeting. So, just as you have been praying for the whole God-honoring process, really ratchet up your prayers over these next two weeks, not only for us having discernment, but for that candidate and his family having discernment as well. And then in two weeks, we'll report what that vote is, but you'll have to be here to find out. <laughs> now, today, as we close out our missions month, I want to address a destructive tendency that is afflicting our culture. 
And I want to address it because that same destructive tendency frequently infiltrates and afflicts the church. The tendency of which I'm speaking has reached epidemic proportions in our nation and with devastating effects. It stifles listening, dialogue, civility, understanding, and cooperation. It births hatred and resentment and arrogance and indifference. It fuels the growing polarization that threatens the very foundations of our democracy. But it's when this tendency infiltrates the church that it does its greatest damage. Because when it infiltrates the church, it stifles biblical understanding and biblical practice. And the consequences of those losses are truly eternal. So it wouldn't be a stretch to suggest when this tendency infiltrates the church, it fuels a spiritual polarization. It separates us from the intentions of God, and that threatens the very foundations of our mission in the world. And that's why I want to close Missions Month by addressing this tendency. Now, to set the stage for our consideration, I want to read two biblical texts that are foundational to who we are and what we do at ACAC. One is from the Old Testament book of Micah, the other from Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Micah 6.8 says, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? And then Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All that I commanded you. And that word all plays a critical part in my title today because I've entitled today's teaching, Do It all. And I want you to say those three words with vigor. Do it all. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I can't preach on my own. The very idea is ludicrous. And we can't understand your truth on our own. I need the Spirit for proclamation, and we all need the Holy Spirit for understanding and application. So I pray the same thing I pray every time we do this. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Speak to us in this never-to-be-repeated moment in history. Help us to hear your voice, discern your will, and follow it faithfully. And we pray these things with confidence because of your great heart and because we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. I'm sure you've noticed that reading the Bible isn't always a comfortable experience. And it's certainly not for the intellectually lazy. And I say that because God's Word teaches us a host of things that we struggle to comprehend and apply. And one of the foremost is the reality that every commandment of God is an expression of His love. 
even when we struggle to see how that could be the case. And we do struggle because we attempt to define love, and God hasn't asked us to define love. God has defined love for us. And His definition of love is the only one that matters in this universe. But beyond defining love, Scripture tells us in 1 John that God is love. Love isn't just something God does. Love is who God is. And God doesn't step out of who He is when He issues a command. That's why I said every commandment of God is an expression of His love. His commands give us insight into who He is and what love is. Because of that, there are two things that God will never ask you to do, and here's one of them. God will never ask us to obey some of His commands while we ignore others, because doing so would do what? It would violate His love. So God won't point to the Ten Commandments and suggest that you obey the five that you consider most relevant. And he won't suggest out of the over 1,000 commandments in the New Testament that you only obey the ones you fully understand, the ones that make sense to you, the ones that appear most relevant, the ones that pique your interest, or the ones that receive the approval of human society. Now, obviously, there's a reason for my diatribe while I'm emphasizing this reality. Because this reality stands in stark contradiction to the destructive tendency I want to focus on this weekend. And what is that destructive tendency? It's our infatuation with what are known as false dichotomies or either-or fallacies. Let me explain what those are. A false dichotomy is a tool typically used in an argument in an attempt to force your opponent into an extreme position by making the assumption there are only two alternatives and they cannot be reconciled. Now, nothing helps us understand better than an example, so let me give you an example. When I was a college student during the Vietnam War, there was an either-or fallacy, a false dichotomy that I heard virtually every day in our nation. Many of you will recognize it. <clears throat> it went like this. America, love it or leave it. <clears throat> love it or leave it. As if there are no other options. As if you couldn't appreciate your nation and still question the wisdom of some of its military engagements. America, love it or leave it. If you don't approve, you don't love this nation, why don't you get out? False dichotomy. Either or fallacy. Now, this is a relevant topic because if you're listening, the discourse, I won't call it civil discourse because it's not very civil anymore. The discourse of our nation is chock full of false dichotomies, either-or statements. You spend 15 minutes on social media, you will see one false dichotomy after another. You'll read things like, it's either science or religion. 
It's either faith or facts. You're either a capitalist or a socialist. If you don't support this legislation, you're a racist. If you don't support this tax increase, you're opposed to public education. On and on and on it goes. And, and people post these things under the illusion that they're really changing other people's minds, when really they're just ticking people off. <clears throat> we are awash in false dichotomies. Now, I'm not going to dig into why we are so prone to think in that way and to speak in that way. I think the answers are pretty obvious. I think they're spiritual, and I think they're uncomfortable. But my concern is the fact that this destructive tendency can and often does seep into the church with devastating results. And that explains why believers sometimes act as if they must choose between God's command to do justice and God's command to make disciples of all people groups, to choose between Micah 6.8 and the Gospel of Matthew, as if fulfilling the Great Commission is somehow incompatible with doing justice, as if those two commands can't share the same sentence or share the same life or the same heart. Now, there's a lot of evidence for my concern. Several years ago, I was sitting in the audience of a Christian musical, and partway through the musical, one of the characters challenged another character. Both of them were believers, and the challenge suggested that because the latter character was passionate about global mission, she was obviously indifferent to the plight of those suffering injustice in her own community. It was a classic false dichotomy. Took all the restraint I could muster to avoid standing up and saying, no, that's not true, but that's how you get thrown out of places. <laughs> and I'd like to say that was a rare expression, but it wasn't. You see, there have been surveys recently among those who identify themselves as followers of Jesus that reveal something good a growing zeal for local expressions of compassion and justice, especially to the poor and those who have historically been impacted by chronic injustice. That is a good thing. That is a God thing. But those same surveys reveal a declining, a sharp declining passion for global witness, to people who have been historically impacted by the chronic injustice of spiritual darkness and spiritual poverty. Now, there are reasons for every trend. I'd like to suggest several for this one, and I'd like to begin with this one. I think one of the reasons for the trend is the true dichotomy, the true either-or reality that was spoken by Jesus. Remember, Jesus said in no uncertain terms, I am the way, not a way among many. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He went on to say, you are either for me or you are against me. Only two classes of people that Scripture recognizes, the saints and the ain'ts. No middle ground. No straddling the fence. 
Jesus made that very clear. Now, I read something recently I really like because I think it hits the nail on the head. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. So in a culture like ours that's safe to say hates the truth, a culture that denies the existence of absolute truth, a culture that sees the conviction and communication of absolute truth as an indicator of arrogance, ignorance, and bigotry, the words of Jesus will always evoke hostility and disapproval. And that explains in part why our culture will tepidly applaud believers when we do medical missions, when we feed the hungry, when we build housing, when we combat racism, when we help people break free from addiction. The world will applaud. It's always a reserved applause, a suspicious applause, but the world will recognize our efforts. But when the people of God declare God's truth to Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and animists and agnostic and the indifferent, well, that's condemned as hopeless ignorance, arrogance, and bigotry. You see, we're welcome to help out. We're not welcome to speak out. Now, in the face of that kind of disapproval, we shouldn't shouldn't be startled. You remember what Jesus said in John 7, 7. He said, the world hated me, and they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. And Jesus didn't say, the world hates me because I heal the sick. The world hates me because I feed the hungry. The world hates me because I challenge the powers. No, no. He said, the world hates me because I testify that their deeds are evil. Now, again, in the face of that disapproval, as Jesus' followers, we will always be tempted to opt for what I like to call less controversial obedience, the kind of obedience that gets us the tepid applause of the world, but not the obedience that incites hatred and animosity. But if Christ is who He said He is, and if we are to do what He said we are to do, we cannot hit the mute button on the gospel. And if Christ is who He said He is, witness isn't arrogance. It's humble submission to God's love and the truest expression of compassion. See, if Jesus was willing to face hatred, to win a lost and broken world back to himself, we have to be willing to face the same hatred to accomplish the same end. So I think the first reason for the dichotomy is the statement of Jesus and the person of Jesus. He's really controversial. Second reason some are tempted to embrace a false dichotomy where missions is concerned is that we often embrace overcorrection where we recognize a past omission. I've been overeating. I'm going to start fasting four days a week. Yeah, good luck with that. 
I haven't been exercising. I'm got to hit the gym for two hours every day. When we sense we've omitted something, we tend to let the pendulum swing all the way to the other extreme. We do it all the time. I would suggest the history of the world is really a recording of pendulum swings. From anarchy to dictatorship, to anarchy to dictatorship. And I suspect that tendency stems from the fact that it's easier to sit in error than it is to stand in balance. Staying in a place of biblical balance requires discernment, study, vigil, prayer, careful thought, and critical evaluation. You will not coast into biblical balance any more than your automobile will coast uphill. You have to work at biblical balance. It's so much easier to sit in one of the extremes than to stand in biblical balance. Now, I say that because for far too long in our nation, believers stressed making disciples across the ocean while they largely neglected God's command to seek justice for their neighbors across town. They were passionate about missions in the Congo, but not ministry in their own community. And as somebody once said, and I love this description, they would drive by pockets of despair half a mile from the church building so that they could gather together and sing about rescuing the perishing half a world away. And that was not right. And that was unbiblical, and it grieved the heart of God, and it quenched the Holy Spirit. But I want to remind you, failures aren't rectified by shunning other commands. And you don't repair that failure by shunning the command to make disciples and focusing entirely upon the needs of people nearby. And here's why. We never correct one sin by committing another one. Lord, I've been sinning over here. All right, I'll start sinning over here. A third reason why the command to make disciples worldwide is often neglected is the false dichotomy that suggests if we spend time and prayer and focus and funds on liberating people at a distance, that limits what we can do for people nearby. And I'm here to remind you that love, God's love, and God's love in us is not a zero-sum game. Now, zero-sum game is not a term everybody uses every day. So let me explain it for some, review it for others, and the rest of you that know it real well, you can say, I knew that. (laughs) The term zero-sum game comes from the world of economics. And it refers to a financial system. It could be the economy of a nation. It could be the budget of an enterprise. But it's a financial system in which there are a limited number of resources. So, if somebody takes more out of that limited number of resources, that leaves less for everybody else. Think of it as a pie. And if I take a slice that encompasses half the pie, 
I would never do that. I would do it a slice at a time. But anyhow, <laughs> if I take half the pie, that means everybody else in the family is left with less. That's a zero-sum game. There's only so much, and if somebody takes more, somebody else has to take less. Now, many people think of the American economy as if it were a zero-sum game, and it isn't because the economy of a nation has the ability to generate more income through good enterprise. Okay. So our economy is not a zero-sum game. Politicians want you to think that so that they can divide you and then get your vote. Okay. Well, he bought a new car, so now I've got $5 less. No, you don't. No, you don't. Now, I'm not going to teach on economics. I just want to remind you of this. In God's kingdom, love for people far off doesn't diminish love for people nearby because God's love is not a zero-sum game. God's love is unlimited. There are no limits on the love of God. And Paul tells us God has placed His love where? In our hearts. And Paul said He is able to make it overflow. You don't have to be concerned about dispensing cups of cold water if you've got a hose running permanently right next to you. And we don't have to say, well, if, if we manifest God's love over here, that won't leave it. No, no, the hose is running. You'll never run out of God's love. The only things that can diminish our love for people nearby are bigotry, Fear, selfishness, and pride. Those can hinder the flow of God's love. But God's love expressed here will never diminish the expression of God's love over here. God's love is not a zero-sum game. And that explains a statement I heard years ago. Somebody said, the light that shines the furthest out into the darkness is brightest at its source. That makes sense, doesn't it? The brighter you are at the source, the further you'll penetrate the darkness. And the love for God that sustains witness far off will sustain witness and compassion and justice nearby because obedience in one matter fuels obedience in other matters. When you obey God, you taste and see that the Lord is good. Then you want to taste more. Then you want to taste more. You don't correct one sin by committing another, but obedience in one matter fuels obedience in other matters. Two weeks ago, Pastor Glenn, who needs to get a little more passionate about missions, don't you think? <laughs> you cut him, he doesn't bleed blood, he bleeds missions. He reminded us that the founder of our movement, Dr. Simpson, often wept as he contemplated entire groups of people who had never heard the message of Christ. But Dr. Simpson also ministered effectively to the poor and the desperate in New York City where he started. He ministered to immigrants who were facing severe bigotry. When he was getting started, those were mostly immigrants from Western Europe, mostly Italian and Sicilian. They faced hideous bigotry in this country. But he not only led them to Jesus, he helped them to learn the language, helped them to 
translate their skills into employment. He founded homes for unwed mothers that otherwise would have been turned out to the streets in prostitution. He offered ministry education for minorities who could not gain access to the ministry schools and on and on and on and on. In fact, if you read an unbiased history of the United States, you will find that in that era of our nation, there was far less poverty than there is today. And the reason was people like us who believe in the gospel of Christ were deeply, deeply involved in addressing the things that threaten God's shalom in society. And then when the church was doing it well, history tells us, the government stepped in and started it do, to do it not as well. And unfortunately, with that, Christians sort of stepped back. But the man who started a missions movement that today numbers six to seven million around the world understood that God didn't call us to choose missions or justice. He called us to do it all. And his passion to restore broken humanity everywhere was God's passion, and it needs to be ours. So false dichotomies are destructive everywhere, but they're really destructive to God's work in the world because they cause us to see alternatives where alternatives don't exist. It's not either or. And when we think either or, we miss the both and balance that constitutes genuine obedience to God. So in closing, there they are, the two words you wait for. In closing, let me remind you that God's work is something we do together as the body of Christ, as the church. For that reason, God doesn't call us to identical involvement. He calls us to equal passion. Let me unpack that quickly. Scripture tells us we are all given our own unique set of spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities, and unique callings that go with those abilities, and then God is responsible for the outcome. We don't all share the same spiritual gifts. For that reason, in a healthy church, there will be people who focus on those who are already inside the church, walking them through the crises of life, the crises of faith, discipling them, helping them to be well-grounded in their faith. Then there will be others who feel called by God to focus on those who are suffering near the church, people in the community who are experiencing injustice and bigotry and, and bogus economics and so on and so on. And then there will be others whose great and first passion will be those who are far from the church and far from the knowledge of God. In a healthy church, you'll find all of those folks. And, and what isn't helpful is when the first group lectures the second group on their lack and the second group lectures the third group on their lack and establishes little spiritual hierarchies of who is holy and who isn't quite so holy. Uh, that's a dynamic you'll often see in, in local church. If somebody's passionate about youth work, they'll say, everybody should be as passionate about youth work as I am. No, they shouldn't. That's your assignment. 
But you aren't passionate about visiting the elderly and the shut-in and the sick. That's somebody else's assignment. And somebody else is passionate about teaching good theology because what you believe about God shapes everything about your life. Because God gave a variety of gifts, but the church as a whole does what? It does it all. So we enthusiastically support the person with a passion for youth, and we support enthusiastically the person who has a passion for the elderly who could easily be forgotten, because everybody in this room has got to get older. Remember that. Profound truth. You heard it here first. (laughs) Ain't none of us getting out of here alive. None of us. So missions or justice false dichotomy. That's not God. That's the influence of culture. The last time I checked, our influence is to be the Word and the Spirit. So as we close our missions emphasis, will you join your hearts with mine as I pray that God will help us to be a church that does it all. Gracious Heavenly Father, we find it easy to fall into extremes where we don't have to think where things are less complicated. Because the truth is, Lord, we don't like to think all that much. (laughs) We would much rather just sort of go on cruise control and look at the scenery. But you gave us the ability to think and reason for a reason so that we could be discerning people, wise people, obedient people, fulfilling our destiny. Father, I pray that you would help us as one local expression of your kingdom to be a do-it-all church. By your grace, we have become that. We were once the church that sang about those half a world away but did nothing for those half a block away. You changed that. You led us through repentance. You led us through change, and we thank you. But help us to hold on to the balance. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be a do-it-all fellowship. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love those who are far off and to love those who are across the street and to know that we'll have all the juice we need for everything you call us to do because you'll never run out of juice and we don't have to either. And I pray those things humbly acknowledging our total dependence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.